So I'm glad you didn't say the title of the talk, because I've changed the title of the talk. <laughs> um, so I've I changed my mind about what I was going to say. So I, it's now called The Three Robes of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order. Yeah, the Three Robes of the Tree Ratna Buddhist Order. And um, recently at a college meeting, um, Stanisrata brought the order robe uh, to a meeting in the college and tried, we, uh, various people tried it on. A really beautiful robe, actually, uh, that Stanisrata and a few others have been working very hard on. Um, really lovely to see it and lovely to see the attention to detail that Stanisrata was bringing to the robe um, and to the thoughts about the robe and quite what one does with a pleat. <laughs> uh, there's much concern about, you know, belts or not. <laughs> I want a big hat. <laughs> uh, there doesn't seem to be a plan for a big hat, unfortunately. When I became a college member, I thought, at the very least, you could have a big hat, you know. <laughs> you get lots of criticism, so you could think, at least you get a big hat out of it, but there are no hats. Anyway, so... I was very struck by the order robe. I do think that, uh, personally, and in, of course that these things are much discussed, um, I'm rather looking forward to us having an order robe. I hope it will make, I hope it will help us take ourselves more seriously. Um, it could do. Uh, of course, if we're not careful, we'll take ourselves seriously in the wrong way. But it could help us take us more seriously in the right way. Um, so I'm rather looking forward to it. I'm very pleased that you've been working on it, Stanis Rider, and I know others have as well. Um, I think how you dress does actually affect you, uh, probably more than probably more than we realise. You do communicate yourself by how you dress, and you do communicate what you want the world to th- see of you, what, how they, you want them to respond to you. Um, I, I'm, I've got a few friends who've got mental health problems, uh, issues, mental health problems, and I can always tell when their mental health is going downhill by how they dress. It's one of the first things you notice is people dress differently, and um, with one of my friends, I saw her in the street and I thought, oh dear, I must just check up on that, you know. And then I was talking to a doctor just the other day and he said, oh no, it's a, one, of the, one of the diagnostics, you know, when you talk to, look at the mental illness, you look at how they dress, it's one of the, the, the things you explore. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. Um, the, you know, in mental health even, that it's often expressed in how you dress. Um, I've got this friend of mine who, you know, I can tell how he is with whether he's wearing a hat or not. If he's wearing a hat, he's not in a good state. How, whatever he says, you can sort of tell. Um, so I think clothes express the man, as I think something Shakespeare said. Um, so I thought, um, you know, just sort of taking off from that idea of an order robe uh, and the potential value of that. Of course, it's also potential dangers. Of course, we know all that. Um, fill in the blanks. Um, but there is a potential value in that. And I thought I'd therefore talk about, as it were, a sort of imaginary order robe. Um, and I think the three robes of Padmasambhava are the robes all order members should be wearing all the time. I think that's... And too ideal, because none of us could live up to that. But um, in our imagination, at least, we're an order member to the degree to which we're wearing those three robes that Pamasambhava wears. Yeah? Um, and we need to be wearing all three of them. Uh, will all of us have biases towards one or the other? Um, but we really need to be wearing all three. I, I, I started to feel this is one of the many, many reasons why Padmasambha is so important to our order, is those three robes. I've always been very attracted to the metaphor of wearing three robes. Um, the metaphors uh, built into the, the, the colours of the robe, the, me- the, the um, symbolism of the robes. Yeah? I've always found that very meaningful about Padmasambha. He wears three robes. And I think they are the three robes of the Tree Ratna Buddhist order. And I think we're only, a, uh, only a, an order member to the degree to which we're wearing them, or to the extent to which we're wearing them. Yeah. So I thought I'd just talk us through the three robes in, the, in this talk, or ramble, or whatever it is, um, with my thoughts about that, and see, see how, we, how far we get. And I'm not going to you know, talk about Vajrayana, Mahayana, uh, Hinayana, and so on. I, it's not my, <laughs> not my thing. Uh, so I want, to, I want to look at the robes more symbolically and, and, 
uh, perhaps even imaginatively. So I've got three things, I think, to say about the blue robe and the yellow robe, and strangely, I didn't find I had so much to say about the red robe. Um, You can discuss why that is later. (laughs) Um, So the first thing I thought about the blue robe, and it's a blue robe, and in in my imagination, it's not not strictly true, because Padmasambha wears a white Vadra garb, doesn't he, shirt underneath the blue robe, which is, I always imagine, is the white light of reality itself. So he's wearing against his skin, and I like that metaphor, directly, uh, this white robe. But let's just imagine that actually the blue robe is worn directly against the skin. Um, and the metaphor there is, is of a direct experience. Uh, the metaphor there is of direct embodied experience, um, not something notional, not something secondary. Um, so I, I think of this first blue robe as being the blue robe of direct experience. Yeah? Um, Bhante, talk, when he talked as a... Um, when he does the tantric path, that's the main thing he emphasises, doesn't he, about the tantra, is it's the path of direct experience. And of course he says, well, all of Buddhism is like that, really, but the tantra brings that out in, his, in Bhante's reading of it. So it's uh, the robe of wearing direct experience, which in, in a more kind of um, straightforward way is, is the robe of being f- totally honest, yeah? um, uh, rigorously truthful, to yourself, about yourself. Um, um, that's what you need to be dressed in first. Um, you need to be rigorously truthful to yourself, about yourself, and you need to be as truthful as possible with others. It's not always possible to be truthful with others. Um, if we're not careful, we'll erode that between us, if we're not careful. Because um, truth... To be truthful with others often is um, unstabilising to some degree. It's often unstabilising in yourself, isn't it? Um, And if we're not careful, we'll protocol our movement so that we protocol out truth, and we mustn't, mustn't do that. But at the very, very least, we must be rigorously truthful with ourselves um, and not look at ourselves from a a secondary and highly analytic uh, perspective. You know, um, in, in, in terms of the Honeyball Sutra, uh, we mu- we, not looking at ourselves in, on the basis pr- of prapuncha samya samska, yeah? not looking at oneself on the basis of secondary constructions, including Buddhist constructions. Um, I've, I've been noticing people talking to me about meditation. It gets more and more technical to the degree to which you feel they're not really um, interested in, uh, connected to their actual direct experience they're applying a secondary um, analytic to their experience. And then, of course, your experience will shape to the view you bring to it, if you see what I mean. Um, Anyway, be that as it may, we need to be rigorously honest with ourselves and keep coming back to um, that kind of willingness to face up to your own reality, Um, which could be simply put as something like, you are not a nice person and you have everything yet to learn. Yeah, um, I, I think that robe could just have that embroidered on it. You are not a nice person, and you have everything yet to learn. Um, anyone who's truthful with themselves knows those two things. Um, it's only by um, <clears throat> judicious editing that you could possibly think otherwise. Really, um, I've been t- saying this a while, a, a few times, but um, you know, I've got children in my life. I've got two. I want to say little girls now, but they're not little anymore. <laughs> and they don't like being called little. I remember to Alex, I said, I never expected to have a little girl in my life. She said, I'm not little. <laughs> never mind all that. <laughs> Factual accuracy. Um, and uh, once when she was very small, I was carrying her. And uh, somebody came a bit too close to us. Uh, I was holding her, you know. And uh, someone came a bit too close to us. And I really felt my wolfishness, you know, if that person had got any closer, I mean, the, 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 the level of that kind of animal protectiveness um, that would, could have easily become violence, if it's been, that, that, that the sheer instinct to protect this child, um, you, know, the, the, you know, I almost bared my teeth, you know, this person. Um, if you ever have children, it's, it's extremely, you can, it touches right something very, very deep in your 
nature, you know, and that kind of protective thing. But don't you, don't you also notice, just looking at yourself, how, how much ill will there is still, how much resentment is there, um, and so on, how easy it is to get into vengeful thoughts. I, I find myself still very prone to that. Um, you know, putting, the, putting things straight, you know, horrible, you know, really horrible. Um, and shocking from someone, you know, like myself, who's um, committed my life to the Buddha Dharma. You know, it's shocking to find oneself with this aversion, with this petty-mindedness, with this, and so on and so forth. So, um, so I want to make a plea for the blue robe. We're starting off, we keep coming back to, here's what I'm like, I'm not a nice person, and I've got everything yet to learn. Um, I, I think there's something ennobling about that. Um, Rilke said it of Van Gogh, he said that he, knew, he, he said there is everything yet sti- still to learn. That, and he said it's a, it's a remarkable, noble sense that you've got everything yet to learn. Any painter, any artist, they never feel like I've kind of got it, kinda, I'm kind of really good. Um, they always feel, to the degree of their greatness, they feel they've got everything yet to, yet to learn. If you don't feel you've got everything yet to, yet to learn, it's really just a it's just a, a, a culpable naivety at best. Yeah. I was raised. I recently interviewed Jory Graham, an American poet, and one of the one of her wonderful poems. It finishes with this line: "I am not what I asked for," <laughs> uh, which I I think one way of thinking about the blue robe is: I am not what I asked for. If I'm honest with myself, I am not what I asked for. Yeah. Um, so that's the first, I think, element, for me at least, when I was thinking about it, of the blue robe of direct experience. But that, in a way, that is a sort of harder element, isn't it, of that self-truthfulness and, and, and honesty. And then, of course, you've got, it's also the robe of the, your mystic depths. Um, that's my other sort of thought about the robe. Um, Padmavadra gave me my sadhana, effectively, I mean, I had this grave doubt after taking on the Padmasambhava Sadhana. I had this awful feeling that I'd made the wrong decision because I'd never been very attracted to the figure of Padmasambhava. And um, I had to rush across to Padmasambhava and I think I've made a mistake. You know. Anyway, he took me through the Sadhana very, very kindly when I was ordained. And um, I remember him t- talking. He's very good, isn't he, Padmasambhava, at knowing how to talk to you in a way that brings that something out of you. And he, even though we'd only met on that, on that course, he was very, very kind. He was very, very kind to me, Padmavadra. I still feel grateful to Padmavadra for that, uh, for all his kindness to me, not just then, but you know, to the literally the present day. Um, what would we do without Padmavadra? I must say. <laughs> um, anyway, he he took me through the sadhana, and he was t- talking about the blue robe as being embroidered with dragons, and uh, for me, that's that, that's essential about the blue robe that it's embroidered with dragons. It's a mystic. Robe. It's like Prospero's cape in the Tempest. It's the magician's robe. Um, I imagine those dragons moving. I, re- I imagine it being filled. You know, suddenly they're birds, and then suddenly they're fish, and suddenly they're they're lions and tigers. And I imagine it that kind of robe, a magic robe that you that's woven with spells. Um, and, and golly, we really need that close to our skin. Uh, more than ever, uh, when we can so easily become uh, technical, analytical, secondary, um, uh, you know, absorbed in, um, you know, um, technology and so on, we really need right against our skin all this, this magic robe of myth, of dream, of, of story, um, of dragons becoming birds, becoming lions. Uh, we really, really, really need that. Um, so much to say about that, and I, I don't want to talk too much about that because, in a way, you need to leave that as an image. But I keep coming back to that as an image that I want to wear that blue robe. Um, I don't want my responsibilities in life uh, to, 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 to destroy the blue robe. Um, and that is a danger, I think, as you take on any kind of responsibility in life, that you, you lose touch with that mythic depth. You know? I mean, the, the colour of blue is so symbolic of the sea, isn't it? Um, so he's also wrapped in a robe that's of the depth of the sea and the height of the sky. You know, if one did want to get more, kind of, not analytical, but if one wanted to get a bit closer to that, another way of thinking of the blue robe is a blue robe of sardana. 
um, so that you're wrapped in faith. And again, that faith is the closest to you. <laughs> you're wrapped in sadhana, in that imaginative meeting uh, with your failed humanity. Um, don't you often feel like I was feeling in my sadhana this morning? I, I get a lot of discomfort in meditation. There I was again, sitting there, all this discomfort. Um, and then my mind, you know, isn't, isn't what it could be. Yeah, it's just a mess. <laughs> and I close my eyes, okay. <laughs> it's a mess in here. Um, and then, you know, you imagine this figure. And, you know, on, you know, on the basis of that kind of truthfulness that you're not a nice person and you've got everything to learn, you imagine the solution to that. And the first robe he wears is the blue robe of, um, of Shraddha. So the blue robe is, is the blue robe of sadhana. Um, but sadhana, the trouble is we use this word sadhana in two ways. We use it in, here's the practice of the sadhana, and we use it in this much richer way, which is our life. And I mean it probably in both ways, but particularly in our, in our life. Like nowadays when I do my sadhana, which I do most days still, um, I, I very, very rarely literally visualise the figure anymore. That seemed to have stopped. Um, but I feel Padmasambha very much alive in my life um, in a way that I can't really, almost not my business. So you could, if, you, if you don't like the language of Shraddhara of faith, heavens only know why one, want, why one wouldn't like that language. But anyway, you, you, know, you can, you know, Sabuti just talks in terms of imagination. The problem with the word imagination is that um, it's a secular word. It's got a glass ceiling on it, hasn't it? It doesn't allow for re- religious experience. What Banti's been trying to show us is that faculty of the imagination reaches all the way up into mystic experience, into what, we, if, what we've cordoned off as religious experience. Um, it's the same faculty, you know, that imaginative faculty that makes you understand others, that make, helps you empathise and all that sort of thing, but it reaches right off into the infinite. It's just that the, the word imagination, I think, is too secular. Um, so you need a word like Shraddha. In fact, I'm, I'm increasingly wanting to use much more religious words for what we're, what we're trying to do. Um, I mean, Banti, in the introduction to the survey, he talks about having faith in um, an experience that goes beyond the physical senses and the rational mind. Yeah? I think it's a, a key passage in that introduction to the survey, that we need faith in an experience that goes beyond the physical senses and the rational mind. And what's showing up to me now is that question of the rational mind. No way can you get there from a, with, a, from with a rational mind. So that blue robe is a f- robe of faith in experience that, go, that, can, that we can have an experience that goes beyond the physical senses and the rational mind. And that's embodied imaginatively in the figure of the sadhana yeah, and in the drama of the sadhana. However, that drama unfolds over time for you. I mean, mostly in my meditation at the moment, I'm mostly reflecting on the lakshanas and then bringing in the sadhana in um, more explicitly in response to that. Um, so however the sadhana opens out to you. So yeah, the, the blue robe is the, the robe of our mystic and uh, mythic depth. It's the, the sea robe, uh, the sky robe, yeah. uh, dragons. I think it's also the robe of uh, the indefinable spirit of our movement and order. Yeah. Um, I keep coming back to this as a key statement of Bante's in that what is a Western Buddhist order right at the end if you remember it he says we need to pay particular care to cherish the indefinable spirit that animates our movement and order and he's saying that the college needs particularly to look after that but every order member needs to do that Um, and he he says in that question and answers he, he says even the attempt to define it is Problematic, the attempt to pin things down, the attempt to button things up. Yeah? Um, I think the blue robe, for us as order members, as an order robe, is this indefinable spirit of our movement and order, which you cannot define, and even the attempt to define it is problematic. Yeah? And we, it's our great duty as order members to keep that alive. Um, if we can't keep that alive in ourselves... That's, that's a great injury to ourselves. Um, we certainly won't be able to become a private preceptor if we can't keep that alive, because it's that that we're passing on. 
primarily, weirdly, we're passing on something that you can't talk about, which you can never define, but which, if you haven't got it, the whole, the whole edifice falls. You know? uh, I, I still don't think that we've quite understood this deeply enough, and I don't, partly because it's so difficult to talk about, because um, you can caveat it forever, but there's something I still feel like I haven't managed to think properly about there, this indefinable spirit um, that animates us and moves between us. You feel it between us just this weekend, don't you, so much? Um, watching Sangajit playing cricket, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know. You just feel it amongst us. Um, and of course there's so much possibility of disharmony amongst us, but, uh, and we, and, but there's also so much possibility of love. I was very struck, I'm sharing a room with lots of guys from London, uh, from the RBC, and um, I'm slightly struck by that, is that normally when you live and work with people, when you go away, very often you can't wait to get away from them. But we all want you to be together. So there we are, and Dionysus sleeping above me. I mean, occasionally sleeping anyway. Um, <laughs> he had something sent here for his slippers. Where is Dionysus? <laughs> um, and we, just last night we were just sort of all sitting up there, you know, at night, talking about nothing very much. Um, and I was thinking, golly, that is the highlight of my weekend. <laughs> just sitting on the floor with, all, with friends that I've had for years. And they're just talking about nothing much. Just cause we, and really the talking at all is just because we want to be with each other. And you can't just, being there in silence doesn't work either. It's too kind of religious. So we just sort of talk about nothing much. Um, <laughs> I say this to someone, like, and I try and make a joke, and uh, I tease my Trey Roger about looking thin. He says that's my body shape, and we, you know, we do the same. <laughs> we go basically through the, you know, sort of series of jokes which we never tire of. Um, <laughs> but within that, you know, it's, and it's so easy to be a bit cynical. Oh yeah, well, what's that to do with spiritual life? But it's so vital. It's it's like the key of everything. It's just the whole thing set up so you can just sit around with a few friends and talk about nothing. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's, that seems about as good as it can get. Um, <laughs> yeah, so... And that is founded on Bante. Um, that, that spirit there is founded on Bante, isn't it? Uh, so much. You know, and he... You know, we've had... I was originally going to have a whole talk on the disciple and the teacher again. That's why I had that title. But I changed my mind about that. I don't think we need to talk about that that much. Um, the only thing I was thinking about that is... I still don't really understand why people have tripped up over that world, disciple. Um, I, I, I can't really get to the bottom of it in my mind because I've never found it personally problematic. Um, but in a recent thing I was reading, the bounty is talking about what a disciple is. And he was saying, well, if you think I'm your teacher, then what does that make you? If you think I'm your teacher, what does that make you? It's a, it's, it can't be a student. Because um, if someone is a student, that you're just learning something off them. Uh, and he was saying, a disciple is just, the reason you use more religious language like disciple, it just means someone who puts into practice what you teach them. Uh, so that, you know, you're teaching them and the person learning from you is then trying to learn how to put that into practice in their life. Uh, that's what makes you a disciple. Otherwise, you know, you teach somebody, I don't know, art history, but you don't expect them to, you know, <laughs> to put Titian into their life you know, somehow or put, you know, Van Gogh's letters into their, you know, into their practice. And it's to do with putting something into practice, you know, this thing of discipleship. Probably we haven't got a very good word for it. And I can see that, you know, some people, if you, particularly if you've got a very strong religious background, perhaps the word disciple, you know, makes you think of the Jesus' disciples and so on. Um, but that's all it means. It just means that you're putting something into practice. In other words, you're not learning a subject because uh, the Dharma isn't a subject. I don't, I don't think... The Dharma is a subject. Therefore, you can't have a teacher and a student. Um, also, student now is a rather cleaned up term. Like, I've got, you know, I, I, I've got this poetry mentor, Mimi Calvati. And I was thinking, what would I think of her? In, in some ways, you know, I talk about her as my poetry teacher or whatever. But there's definitely an, actually an element of discipleship even there. You know, um, her editing of my work and suggestions aren't just, oh, look, you know, you've got the pentameter wrong there or that's too, too much of a, uh, a rhymey rhyme. Um, it's it, how you use words and how you use the, the metrics of poetry is about your soul. <laughs> you know, it's about who you are. So me put, trying to put that, and I'm trying to put that into effect, you know. 
So even, I think even in what we call teachers in a more secular sense, there's often an element of discipleship, isn't there? Probably you think back to your teachers at school, there was a, probably an element of discipleship. I was thinking with my brothers. My brothers were very cruel to me when I was young. And I was thinking, what a shame, because had they not been, I would have been devoted to them. You know, my, my, my brothers look like photocopies of me, uh, but then a bit more, one of them is considerably more sweary. Um, <laughs> I mean, it swears like a trooper. In front of my mother, <laughs> my mother smiles, and I, my brother swears. Like, it doesn't seem to mean anything bad by it, but he looks just like, just like me, a bigger, beefier version of me, but blue as they come. Anyway, um, <laughs> you know, um, you know and I, would have, I would have adored him, you know, as a, like a disciple, <laughs> You know, younger brothers often do feel like disciples of older brothers. You know, so I, I think even the language of teacher. You know, if you, it's not as simple as that, is it? You often feel a bit of a disciple, and that's quite problematic. And it is problematic. You know, had I been disciples of my brothers, that would have been problematic. Um, you're sort of a bit of a disciple of your father, aren't you? And then that becomes problematic because they're not what you thought they were. And I think the the whole question of discipleship goes very. Very, very deep. Yeah. I mean, the, how I've been thinking about banter, I, I still think we haven't quite, some of us haven't quite understood what we mean by banter. It's partly just that word, banter. Just being able to say that word, banter, banter, banter. In a way, um, the meaning of banter is in that word, in his name. I, I, I remember thinking it was actually an affectionate nickname. I remember when I writing something and put Bant, it's an affectionate nickname. And so Booty would say, no, it's not. <laughs> it means reverent teacher. So we know what Banty means. It means reverent teacher, and you use it if you're a disciple of that teacher. But amongst us, it's come to mean something more affectionate than that. At least at YouTube. People are starting to use Sangarachita again now, like they're suddenly putting on a, a shirt and tie. You think, well, why have we suddenly started being formal with each other? Well, Sangarachita. You think, Who, who's that guy? You know, Banty has got this sort of lovely... Respect in it, but also affection within the word for me. I mean, perhaps it's a generational thing, but in the word for me, it's all the stories that we tell about Bante and this time and his voice. I can do, I, I do, I have too many impersonations of Bante. <laughs> I got a guy moved, a young guy, 22, moved into our community. And he says, Why, what is that voice you keep putting on? I said, Oh, yeah, you, you actually haven't heard the original. He just thinks, Why does he didn't do that? And he just put his finger like that. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, I hope, anyway, there you go. Don't do impersonation. <laughs> and, how, and how I've been thinking about him, uh, and I checked this out with Tara Dasa earlier, is, is to do with Schubert. I'm a great fan of Schubert. I think Schubert's music is... I keep going back to it again and again. And uh, I remember reading that he wasn't a very good pianist, and this is why I checked with Tara Dasa, and he said that compared to whom? Compared to you? <laughs> 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 the good part, you see where he's coming from, don't you? <laughs> um, so he was a very good pianist compared to you know. But I remember reading that you know he'd write a sonata and he'd get his friends round and say, uh, you know, why don't I play this sonata? And they'd, and one of his friends said, no, no, I'll take, I'll do it. You know, let, <laughs> give it to me because he he'd often get get notes wrong and all that sort of thing, and so people would take it off him. Um, Torodasa said he could imagine that happening, <laughs> but it was unwilling to, to verify it. Um, anyway, <laughs> so Schubert isn't a great pianist. And probably Torodasa was saying to me, yes, he wouldn't have been able to sort of make his living as a pianist. He wasn't that good a pianist. And his, his music, um, Schubert's music, is obviously difficult to play, but it's not virtuosic. Um, you don't have to be a great pianist to be able to play it. You have to be good but you don't have to be great. But the music, the music. I mean, if you, you know, the, the, go, go to the late sonatas, for the music, everywhere you get to Schubert, you get this music, which is Schubert's music. And he died young, but you, you feel with Schubert that his music is looking right back on life as if it happened a long, long time ago, and all the sadnesses and pain of it which were terrible, and all the fear and hatred in his life, um, is like, for me anyway, he feels like he's remembering them from a long time ago, and they're, they're resolved now in this, in this greater beauty. And there's that music everywhere, you, for me, everywhere you touch Schubert. And surely, I'm sure, I don't know enough about him, but 
some of, some some of it's better than others. You know, I you know I, I prefer the piano music to the symphony. You know, um, but there's the music, and that for me, I think I find that directly analogous with Bante. Um, you might not like all of Bante's music. You might say, well, I don't. This doesn't work, and actually, that sort of contradicts the later music. And you might you might even say, actually, you could imagine um, I don't know. Um, Mitsushu Ushida playing it, and that would be better than Schubert playing it, if you sort of mean. You can imagine it played by different pianists and bringing out quite different... Baron playing it, um, Brendel playing it, Ushida playing it, bringing out quite different elements of Schubert. But nevertheless, you still get that music. And it would be very, very difficult to define it. I'd sort of foolishly tried to do that. And that, that doesn't really capture it. If you don't get the music... It can't really help you with Schubert. You just you said, well, you need to listen to more of it, you know, and you need to listen to more of it in a good state. Um, it's no good saying, well, he's not a very good pianist, or I could imagine so-and-so playing it better. And I, I think, for me, that's what... If everywhere you touch Bante, the letters, the seminars, and I always want to recommend the seminars, the, 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 the lectures, the, the books, um, the conversations, the, the stories he tells, the meetings we've all had with him. There's that mu- Bante music in every place, just like there is Schubert's music, all the way through his music, but his written music is not um, reducible to that music, and yet that music is in, every, in everything with Schubert. And I think that's the same with Dante. And it's that indefinable spirit, that music uh, that comes through Dante, that was opened by Dante for us, which we are uh, inheritors of and need to cherish that music. Whatever we think about the piano playing, whatever we think about this piece rather than that piece, uh, we need to listen for the music. Very, very different thing to the written score. We need to listen to the music. And... um, if we're in the honoured position of ordaining someone, our, our duty, our, our, our fearful duty, is to make sure we pass on that music. Um, and you can never even... You, can, you can't say that the music is this particular way of playing that. Um, otherwise, it becomes a heritage site, you know I mean, where, where only Alfred Brendel can play Schubert. Um, you know, there's all new, there'll, there'll be new pianists come along and you think, I've never heard Schubert like that. If you hear... Britain playing Schubert, for instance, Benjamin Britten, Schubert starts to sound like Benjamin Britten. Um, very strange, and he plays it, and then you think, God, oh, that's very like Britain's music. Uh, you get Peter Pierce singing Schubert's songs, it sounds like, a, sounds like a Britain song. So that the music of Schubert can sort of strangely go into other mouths. And again, that's very, very, for me, very redolent of what Bante's relationship is to us. And we need a, a mythic way of understanding that, imaginative musical way of understanding that and valuing that and that's our overarching that's what we mean when we talk about Bante um, of course there are questions for some of you there's, there aren't any more for me um, of course there are questions but we need the music yeah? so this is all under my category in the blue robe as being indefinable the indefinable spirit of our movement and order that animates our movement and order I've used that metaphor there as a kind of music running through our movement and order. And sometimes you, you, you can get into situations where you can't hear that music because it's not there. And that's really worrying. There can be lots of other problems, but when you can't hear that music, that really worries me. <laughs> um, and, and, it's, and it's an aesthetic uh, judgment. It's not an analytic one or a so-called scholarly one. It's an aesthetic judgment. And yes, aesthetic judgments are also intelligent, um, but you can't reduce aesthetic judgments to intelligence. It's not as simple as that. Um, anyway, I won't go on about that anymore. But um, I mean, the, the way I'm thinking about this blue robe, probably most particularly, uh, and it's slightly well, it's very religious language. I think of it as a, as the robe of the divine. Yeah. Um, and the and I put the divine under the in, in, in indefinable because. I, it's in that intermediate that place, isn't it? The, the, defi- the divine. But I like that language of the divine. It's, it precedes Christianity. Um, you know, the gods were always thought to have, it, have divinity. Even, it's not even used. Apparently, I've been reading more in Christianity recently. 
It's not even being used so much in Christianity now, the divine body of Christ and so on. Uh, but for me, it's the, the robe of the divine. And um, I thought I'd, there's a little section from Marilyn Robinson's new book of essays. Um, if, you've, if you've not read Marilyn Robinson, I very much recommend it. I think she's a, a major, if not great, uh, novelist. I, I went to see her talk just last week. Um, uh, she's a Calvinist. Um, it's very, very, I find myself in an odd position being inspired by the thought of a Calvinist. And she's a very committed Calvinist thinker. Um, so, you know, there's problems with it. But her, her definition of the, of, the, of the divine is a mode of being not conjured from human fear or hope, but prior to and independent of humankind and profoundly efficacious to be understood tentatively by an, by, an analogy, by an analogy to human consciousness, which it utterly transcends. I'll do, do that again. Um, a mode of being not conjured from human fear or hope, but prior to and independent of humankind and profoundly efficacious to be understood by tentative analogy to human consciousness, which it utterly transcends. Yeah. Now, I think she goes, understandably, too um, eternalistic there. I wouldn't agree with independent of humankind. I'd say something more goes beyond humankind, but not separate from it, if you see what I mean. I think independent of humankind has taken you into theology. Um, but I really love to be understood by tentative analogy to human consciousness, which it utterly transcends. Um, so... I, I think she's, you know, obviously will take us too far into um, eternalism. But it's that kind of understanding of the divine, a mode of being not based on human fear or pride or hatred or um, hope, uh, but that she says is prior to that, uh, I, you know, independent, as it were, you'd have to say, of humankind, analogous to human consciousness, but which utterly transcends it. So that's the blue robe. It's the blue robe of direct experience, the blue uh, of rigorous truthfulness, of self-honesty. It's the blue robe of mystic depth. Uh, it's a dragon robe. It's a sea robe. It's a robe of imagination and sardana and faith. And it's the robe of the indefinable, especially for us order members, the indefinable spirit that animates our movement and order that has been opened to us by Bante. Um, that indefinable spirit. And I think if we're wearing the blue robe, if we, to the degree to which we're wearing the blue robe, um, that, that will uh, be expressed in the yellow robe. Yeah? Um, the yellow patched robe of the monk. Uh, there, and, you know, I'm sitting opposite Arloka's wonderful figure of the Buddha with the yellow patched robe of the monk and how he much he's tried to really... Um, evoke the poverty of that, um, the renunciation of that robe. And, and Chintalman has done something uh, wonderful and, and similar in its own way, uh, Vajrasana, evoking the ragness, the poverty of that robe. And we need to remember, as well as the Buddha's glory we, and, and mystic depths that he lives from, we need to remember the poverty that he, he dresses himself in, um, the abject poverty he dresses himself in. Um, so to the degree to which we're wearing the blue robe, we'll express the blue robe through the yellow robe. That's why I think it's so important that there's three robes. Yeah? We express the blue robe through the, the yellow robe. So again, I've got three things I want to say about that. Firstly, the yellow robe is the, ye the robe of the genuinely good. Um, it means becoming a genuinely good man or woman or, you know, something else. Uh, it means being genuinely good. Yeah. Um, and that's very, very hard to do. Uh, ve it's very, very hard to be genuinely good. Um, living in our order, growing up in our order, uh, practicing in our order, one of the things you really get more and more of a sense of, and anyone growing up will experience this, how, just how hard it is to be genuinely good. It's easy to pretend to be good. It's easy to um, uh, virtue signal online and show people how good you are. Um, it's easy to opinionate, 
but it's very, very difficult to be genuinely good. I find this more and more of a challenge, not less and less of one. Um, partly because by wearing the blue robe to any extent, you want to unbutton. You, you want to just express yourself very fully and directly. You want to become the dragon. Um, how do you become the dragon and then have this robe of goodness? You know, I, I think that's a very deep matter. And... Um, very, very deep matter and very, very hard to do. Um, it burns you trying to be genuinely good. Uh, there's so much in all of us that's vengeful, resentful, uh, um, uh, passive. Um, I've been feeling more and more the weight of passivity. I don't think it shows up enough in our ethics. Um, passivity gradually, sort of, it's like, it's like moss, it just grows and chokes the life out of things. Um, but because it doesn't hurt anyone, um, you know, nobody usually is hurt by someone's passivity. I think it, we don't see it as how serious it is. It, it, it gains weight and, you know, sogginess very you know, gradually, gradually, until it sinks the whole creature. Dreadful mixing of metaphors there. Uh, anyway, I think that passivity doesn't show up enough for us. Um, it's an ethic that I think might be very, very important. Um, so genuine goodness is about um, not being passive. It's very, very difficult not to be passive because the whole world around you is trying to get you to be passive, so you buy things. You know, um, so you, you know, scroll down on Facebook, so you look at your um, Twitter account, so you, you, you just sort of passive your life away so that the market can use you and manipulate your agency. It doesn't want you to have agency. It wants to pop things into your mind that suggest that you buy things, yeah? I think passivity is a massive issue. Um, you know, they, they, they think, some psychologists think that it's because of this that there, there's, there's this epidemic in depression. Like if you watch a comedy programme on TV you, you, and you ask how you found it, you'll say that you enjoyed it. But if you did a psychometric test, you come out of mildly depressed. Um, and it's because you're very passive. So they, they think that, well, well, one theory about depression is that Technology is making us more and more passive, and then passivity makes you more vulnerable to, uh, low, you know, to, to feeling low because activity um, uh, kind of keeps your, your energy going, I suppose. Um, so I, I've just been reflecting, I'm sure you have, that how difficult it is to be genuinely good and how easy it is to pretend to be good, um, especially when so much of our life, if we're not careful, is lived online. Um, very, very easy uh, to be, pretend to be good and very difficult to be genuinely good. I still find myself with everything to learn about being genuinely good. Um, and the other thing I want to say about goodness is you know full well what it means. You don't really need um, some explication of what, what being a good man means. I don't need to say it means being trustworthy, dependable, truthful, honest, um, kindly. You, we all know what being good means and I think the language of goodness, the moral language of goodness, I think there's something very important about that that doesn't get captured in skillfulness, which it, by comparison sounds, to my ear, sounds strangely technical and analytic. Have you been, oh, I've been a bit unskillful. Um, I want the language I've been, I, that was my fault. Um, that was badly behaved of me. Uh, I'm really sorry. Uh, that was a bad thing to do. Um, I, I talked to a friend of mine recently and I... I I said, and I hope I, anyway, I said something of that, that kind, um, and I need to say that to myself. Very, very difficult to do. It's scorching to, to say to someone, I'm sorry, that was a really bad thing to do. Um, not that I've been a bit unskillful there, which just doesn't capture it. Um, it's, it's a euphemism, if you're not careful. Um, yeah, so we know what it means, and we really want it. Uh, I've, been, I've been struck... Uh, you know, I've been, uh, by Jordan Peterson, and one of the things he's been saying is, he said, it's absolutely in your interest to be good. Absolutely in your interest. Don't think that that's, that's um, something you can play with, because and the point that he makes is you want to be someone who everywhere you go, people are genuinely pleased to see you. When you come to this order weekend and people go, hi, I'm, you know, and you know what it's like when someone is genuinely pleased to see you. Um, it's so lovely when that happens. I recently went to Dublin. I can't tell you how um, hospitable 
Uh, they were there. I, you know, somebody, they, um, Nyanadara bought me this book, and it not only a book I would love to have, but a book that I'd love to have, which I haven't yet got. You know, the, the thoughtfulness in that, I thought, was be- just beautiful. The, the sense of being welcomed is so lovely. I can't tell you. It was, it was so... And then someone gave me some money, and then, you know, it was just lovely. Um, we all, that's what we really want, is where you go, your friends just really are pleased to see you. Uh, they're really happy to see you. They, they want to know what you think about something. They want to bring to you the things that's difficult for them at the moment in the hope that you're going to be able to help them and because they've had experience that you have in the past and you haven't been moralistic with them and you haven't posted something on Facebook about them and you haven't, um, you know, re- you know reply all that way. Well, I think, you know, <laughs> you know, you haven't done that. So they can talk to you and they can say... I'm not sure what to do about this. And they, they know they're going to meet someone trustworthy, loving, tough, um, grown-up, good. You know, that's what we so need. And you can't imitate it. We're very nice people, so you can, you can be, you know, oh, lovely to see you. But you usually get a little bit more um, formal, don't you, when there's strain. So you start to use someone's name a bit more um, because there's a slight formality. Um, Shakespeare says, doesn't he, in Julius Caesar, when love calls, the first thing that happens is you start getting a bit more polite. Um, I've always thought that's such a wise remark. It's the first symptom of love cooling is you start you know, being a bit more polite, which is really to do with distance. Um, not, of course, that you should be rude, but um, you really want, and this is the point Peterson made, I think, very well, is that you know, people will try and be friendly. They will try and be polite to you because they're grown up. But that's a different music than people just being full out pleased to see you. Um, and you can only get that through your virtue, um, through your saying sorry, through you um, saying, actually, I need to go back to you about that. I was sorry, I, can we just talk about that again? I, you know, da, da, da. Through not writing that letter, you know, through not posting that thing, through saying, actually, I'm going to give them a ring, I think, instead. Um, I, 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 we've all done it. I've just done it just recently, just wrote something and thought, that is getting a bit shirty. Um, you can always tell because you get a bit more careful about how you write the email. <laughs> you know, um, and saying, actually, like, you know them? Like, Hi! <laughs> so, you know, I, you know, you have to ring people. Um, but I, but I'm, I'm struck by how you can only earn that sort of love that you so need by being virtuous. And then people will be really pleased to see you. And you really want that. And you want that for you. You want that for your friends. If you've got children, you really want that from your children. Uh, Sangeet brings his boys up who, you know, wreck the place. Um, his daughter is not big enough yet to do that. Uh, we're hoping that there'll be a bit of, you know, uh, anyway. Um, but they love coming up and we all love them, you know. And that's going to really be in their interests. Sangeet will need to bring them up so that everywhere they go, people say, these, are, these boys, they're great. And adults will be nice to children that they don't like, but it's a different thing. I, I've been struck in my own life, with children in my life, that some of my, um, whatever you would call them, my, Rhea wants me to call her her half, she's my, I'm her half daddy. Anyway, that's, don't, let, don't let's go there. Um, <laughs> I should get funding for it, let's just say that. Um, <laughs> You know, you, they, you really, what you want from them is that where, everywhere they go, they're well-behaved, they're good, they're friendly, they're polite, and then the adults actually like them. Because you cannot not like children just like you can not like adults. It's weird. You don't think you can, but you meet some of your friends and I think, I don't like you. And you don't express that, you don't act on that, but it's different to how you treat the, the next child that comes along who you do like and who's polite and who you can talk to and who isn't just a, a nightmare to have around. And it's just the same for us. And we really want that, don't we? We need and want that to be loved. It's really, really important. Um, and the only way to get that is to wear that yellow robe. The, the yellow robe of virtue. That old-fashioned word, the yellow robe of goodness. Yeah? And of course, it's also, golly, look at the time, it's also um, the yellow robe of renunciation. Uh, the poverty of the robe is very, very important and very, very difficult. <laughs> um, I can't believe I'm even uttering the word. Um, so much of my life doesn't really look like a renunciation. Um, I mean, Bante, when he talks about attachment, he says that we're attached 
to people, to things and to ideas. To people, to things and ideas. And he said that ideas is the strongest thing we're attached to. Um, So this is my second thing I wanted to say about the yellow robe. The first thing is, it's the robe of being genuinely good and how hard that is and how that's the only thing that's in our own genuine interest to be genuinely good because we want to be loved. We need that. And no people trying to love you because they're trying to manage you, that's not the same music, nothing like it. It's not, it won't do it. It'll make you feel like you're not really being loved and that will make you act in a way that isn't lovable, which will continue. You know. We've all done it, we're all doing it, but I think that's very important. And then we need this, the second thing is this que- whole great question of renunciation. I only want to say um, you know, a tiny thing about this, which is, uh, one thing, I, I want to mainly emphasise renunciation of ideas. Um, you know, Banty says that's the strongest thing that we're attached to. Um, and the way I'm thinking about that in, at the moment is renouncing ideological thinking, um, including Buddhist ideological thinking, um, which is very difficult to renounce ideological thinking because it's very difficult to realise that that's what you're doing. Um, it, it's kind of off-the-shelf thinking. Uh, it's basically not thinking. Um, but it's very, very difficult to realise that what you're doing really is talking ideology. You're not talking to the person. Um, uh, at the moment, we do seem to be, again, in a sea of ideology inside and outside the movement and order. Um, so we need to renounce ideological thinking. Um, and I think part of this is we need more of an etiquette with our online, uh, particularly in our order and movement. Some of the things that order members have been posting online is disgraceful for a Buddhist order. You know, it really is. You know, we, we have taken vows. <laughs> you know, we've taken those great vows, we've taken the ten precepts, and we've taken them, and Banti says we take them in a more vow-like way. For us to be posting harsh things online, or even uncharitable things online, it's terribly serious. Um, I mean, understandable that everybody does, because it's so easy and We've all done things like that and regretted it, hopefully. I have and regretted it, uh, possibly not even enough. Um, it's very easy to do, and the technology is making it easy to do. So, you know, we all make, I've made so many mistakes in that way and every other way. But when you th- sort of look back from it, you can think, well, of course, everybody will be doing that because the technology is asking you to do it. But to have a Buddhist order doing that, that have solemnly taken 10 great precepts which you know, with all of that emphasis on speech, um, for have order members doing that, um, golly, that's, that's, that's disgraceful. Um, that's shocking. Uh, you know, we've taken vows. Uh, it's shocking, um, painful for all of us. We're all injured by that. Um, all of us are injured by that, um, whether it's because we've put something or whether we, we, whether we read it. Um, we're all injured by that. Um, now, there is good ways you can use social media. Um, I saw an extremely good kitten video recently, <laughs> which is actually a very, very funny one. Uh, um, it's not always good for much more than that, but you know, there's very good kitten videos. Um, <laughs> and there's a great one of a giant panda eating a lolly, ice lolly. Do you know what it? It's just close-up, giant panda eating this ice lolly. And then he's just, uh, uh, and then he uh, tries to bite it. Oh, it's too cold. <laughs> it licks a bit more, uh, tries to bite it. Okay. You're just like us, it's incredible. <laughs> it's just, it could be you. Anyway, so look at giant panda eating, you know. That's, that's a worth two minutes of your time. Yeah, so, you know, we need to particularly be careful. You need to wear the red, yellow robe online more than, much, much more, I think, than we are. Uh, we are actually, some of us are spreading disharmony. Um, it's a terrible thing to do. I mean, we've always had disharmony amongst us. Um, and that's just natural, because we're human beings and we've got everything to let to learn and we're not nice people. So, of course, there's lots of disharmony between us. Um, you know, that, that's just the nature of things. We all make mistakes. I make mistakes. You make mistakes. It's just that putting it in writing is a wholly different thing. Um, we, we, I think, as order members who've taken vows, we need to be wearing that yellow robe much, much more, particularly online. But yeah, we need to uh, renounce ideological thinking. And I was very struck by what uh, Marilyn Robinson says about ideological thinking. I I think this is brilliant. She says, The willingness to indulge in ideological thinking, 
that is, in thinking that by definition is not one's own, which is blind to experience and to the contradictions that arise when broader fields of knowledge are consulted, is a capitulation no one should ever make. It is a betrayal of our magnificent minds and of all the splendid resources our culture has prepared for their use. Brilliant uh, encapsulation of ideological thinking. It's um, the willingness to indulge in ideological thinking, that is, in thinking that by definition is not one's own, which is blind to, the, to experience and to the contradictions that arise when broader fields of knowledge are consulted, is a capitulation no one should ever make. It is a betrayal of our magnificent minds and of all the splendid resources our culture has prepared for their use. I really love that, a betrayal of our magnificent minds and of all the splendid resources our culture has prepared for their use. So yes, in the yellow robe of renunciation, we need to renounce ideological thinking. Uh, It's a capitulation, as Marilyn Robinson says, that no one should ever make. Um, I was going to say a bit more about uh, renouncing things and people, but perhaps perhaps I better start to draw this to a close. Um, So perhaps mainly talk about um, renouncing ideas, renouncing ideological thinking. Again, um, Jory Graham, she uses this lovely phrase, the tiny carnage of opinions. Um, The tiny carnage of opinions. And um, if we're not careful, that's what we've got online, is a tiny carnage of opinions. But we can spread that tiny carnage of opinions across the world. Um, And that is an ignoble thing for a Buddhist order to do. The world really needs a Buddhist order that has taken vows and taken ten... Uh, great precepts. It doesn't need us to be involving ourselves in this carnage of opinion which is around us. Um, But let's say that then is the yellow robe. You've got the blue robe of direct experience of rigorous truthfulness, uh, particularly within oneself, about who one really is, not um, self-deluding about who one is. having with close to your body this mystic depth that the the uh, dragon-embroidered blue robe of sadhana, of shraddha, having close to one's skin this indefinable spirit that animates our movement and order, all of that being expressed through, as it were, the yellow robe. Uh, The yellow robe, which is the robe of being genuinely good and the difficulty of that, um, the, the, the toughness that that requires of each of and every one of us, the renunciation that that requires. Um, I mean, we, we, we've been talking quite a lot recently about, you know, the couple and the family and that we've used in the past quite um, unfortunate and unhelpful language about those things. And I, I think we have to some degree. But golly, there is still a point in that when we're talking about renunciation. It's not like there isn't a point. Yes, let's get a better way of communicating that point. You know, I've got... These two girls, and tell you what, I love them more than I could have, I tell you. <laughs> I, I, it's been a shock. You know, I didn't expect to have children in my life, um, and I've got every reason not to expect them. <laughs> <laughs> when people ask me about them, I say, I've done literally nothing to deserve it. <laughs> um, you know, it's like a new love affair. Good, you know, it makes my love affair with their father... Um, which was, anyway, we won't go into that. <laughs> but let, do, do ask me about that, because I, I need to get quite a lot off my chest about that. Um, um, it makes that, it's almost like romantic relationships are kind of a, an attempt to get at that child relationship, particularly if, I, I think it, for me, it's very much a girl, <laughs> you know, having a little girl in my, oh my golly, I've never had such a thing. Um, you know, what, what, I was telling Ratna Gosha beforehand, saying that... Um, I'd say I, would, I was talking to her and she, she just realised her mother's older than her friend's mother's, you know, and she didn't notice that. And I was trying to reassure her and she said, well, she's older than the greatest mother and she's older, da, 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 and that means she's going to die, da, da, da. I said, well, yeah, no, she is older than other mothers, but she's not that old. I, mean, I said, she's not even as old as me. And she said, yes, but you're nearly dead. <laughs> <laughs> So I thought, oh, brilliant, you couldn't come up with it, could you? It was like, there is old, there's very old, and there's nearly dead. 
and I'm in the nearly dead category, you know. Um, so someone not being as old as me is like neither here nor there, you know. I am effectively a living corpse, you know. <laughs> Very funny. But, you know, I'm amazed how much, oh, my golly, how, how much feeling I have for them. That has shocked me. Um, uh, that's why I talk about them so much. Um, you know, and, you know, Gary, you know, my partner, you know, he's been, he's been ever so good to me all this time, you know, bless him, he's been ever so good to me. He couldn't ask somebody more generous. And um, I'd hate to have someone who I had to constantly bargain whether I could go off on retreat or not, and they weren't happy and so on. He's been ever so good to me. You know, in, in my own odd way, I love him as much as I can, you know. Um, how does one do honour to that? You know, he's an ever so good man. He's been ever so good to me. He's a communist. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> let's not... Anyway, um, let's not go there. Um, you know, but he's been read, really good to me, and, and I still believe that I'm very attached to him and I'm very attached to the children, and there really is an issue in that. And how do we find a way of wearing the yellow robe about that? doesn't mean to say that, you know, Sangajit needs to come back to live in the community again. Actually, he almost does. He just... <laughs> suddenly, there he is with the three children. Um, um, it doesn't mean anything sort of necessarily crude and ideological, but there is a point in that. You know, only to be honest with oneself, one knows there's a point in that. Um, very difficult to balance that with love and all kinds of loves. I feel I've got more loves in my life than I can accommodate almost, but there is a point in that, and let's, let's not lose that, because um, we'll lose the yellow robe. And the yellow robe isn't something ideological that the Buddhism is getting us to put on against our will. It's saying if you're really truthful about yourself, you've got to be putting on the yellow robe. You've got to be, you know. And that's a difficult thing, because you're also really attached, and that's understandable. You know. Okay, so the blue robe then is, I think, to the degree which we're order members, we're wearing a blue robe. And to the degree to which we're wearing a blue robe, we're expressing that through the yellow robe uh, of renunciation and genuine goodness. And people, other people experience that and make sense of that contradiction between the dragon and the, and the patched robe of poverty, make sense of that contradiction in, in their direct experience of you. They experience it as love. Yeah? They experience it as love. You may not feel loving, but they experience it as love. They, that the red robe makes sense of and expresses the inner meaning of the blue and the yellow robe. Um, how, that you, how Padmasambhava seems as you move towards him is a red figure, isn't it? When, when you have shrines to Padmasambhava, they're nearly always red. I was quite pleased that we had some yellow on this and some blue on this, because very often you think of him as a red figure, and it's just because that's what predominates, that's what you... That's what you, as an unenlightened, see is his love. He's not expressing love. He's just being himself. Um, he's wearing the robes. So when you're genuinely an order member and you're wearing, to some extent, and we can't expect it all the time, but to some extent wearing the blue robe, that will then be expressed to some extent in the yellow robe. People will experience that as you wearing a red robe. <laughs> People will experience you as a loving, uh, robust warm um, person in their life that they want around. They want that red. It's the, it's the colour of life itself. They want red. Um, they, they can be a bit iffy about blue and they're positively unsure about yellow, but they, they definitely want red. You know, they definitely want red. And that's how that experience you, to the degree to which you've let go of ideological thinking, to the degree to which you really are wrapped in uh, the divine, uh, as I've called it in that, that, that very poetic sense, uh, to the degree which you're genuinely trying to be a good person, a dependable, trustworthy person, honest person, people will experience you as a figure of love. Um, and they will want you around. And they will want to know what you think about things. Um, and we all, want, you know, we all want that. And that love is primarily expressed di in, in direct friendship. So even that love is not an ideology. If we're not careful, Buddhist ethics gets reduced into this terrible nuancing of consumer choices, um, as if that's really what we're doing, nuancing con consumer choices. Now, there is value in nuancing consumer choices, but if we're not careful, we'll become frappuccino Buddhists, you know, kind of decaf, latte, you know, soya milk Buddhists. It's all to do with nuancing our choices, um, 
There is a value in that, but it's no way is it the red robe. No way is it really important, the yellow robe. The yellow robe is much, much more demanding than ever nuancing a consumer choice could be about whether you go on a plane instead of a train or whatever it is or whether you use oat milk and so on. Uh, Valuable though they are, they don't touch the yellow robe. They're not even the hem of the yellow robe. Um, It's your hatred and transforming that. It's your lust and transforming that. It's your sheer stupidity and and, and transforming that. Um, But it comes out, doesn't it, in in friendship. It comes out in the four of us or five of us, however many we are, in our rooms talking about nothing um, after the puja last night. It comes out as love, as friendship. And it comes out as friendship because it doesn't come out as ideology. It doesn't come out as some... Uh, sort of view about how the world should be, when you're wearing the, the blue and the yellow robe, the red robe is experienced as love and love is experienced as friendship. Otherwise, it becomes um, like a universal abstraction. Real love is always between me and you. You know, your particularity, my particularity, in this particular moment. It's not some universal abstract panacea that you need to live up to. It's that moment when you're having breakfast with your friend. It's that moment when they're in trouble and you can help them. It's that moment when you have to say, that wasn't good what you did there. I love you very much and that really wasn't good. You must not do that. It's in those moments that we, that we wear the red robe. Um, but yeah, so... Uh, it all, in a way, comes back again to friendship and then to be a genuine friend golly, you need a deeper insight because uh, that's very, very taxing indeed. So you have to go back to wearing the blue robe again, to wearing the yellow robe again and expressing that in the red robe. So that's what I feel the order robe needs to be. It needs to be, as it were, a triple robe. It'll be a blue robe, but we need to imaginatively wear these three robes, the, uh, the blue robe of truthfulness, of direct experience, of rigorous self-honesty, um, the yellow robe of genuine goodness, uh, of, of renouncing ideological thinking, um, because it's thinking that is not our own and it's increasingly dangerous and increasingly uh, vengeful and hateful, and through and wearing the red robe, which is a red robe that people experience. You don't really wear it. People just experience that from you as being love. What you have is friends. Okay.